chapter 22 and verse number 28. I'll tell you, we ought to get excited though, amen? amen. And uh, I, like, I like when God does the small things in our lives. I've said that before. Well, to rejoice in everything God does. And hopefully ask God to show us and help us to realize and recognize when He's doing things in our lives. Uh, I'll tell you a thought that I've used to try to encourage. And I've used this thought here in just the last few weeks to encourage several people. And it was something that I'd never thought about really until about two months ago. I went down to Pastor Casey's office. And as I usually did, many times would just check in with him, see if he needed anything. And... I poked my head around the corner and said, uh, how you doing? He said, fine. I said, is there anything you need? And he made this statement. He said, if I did, how would I know? And that struck me. He didn't think anything about it. He was just being Randy Casey. You know, he's, you know how he is. He just sometimes will just say things and you think, oh, okay, that's Randy Casey. But it was one of those things that just struck me. And I got to thinking on that and I got so excited about that thought because here's the thing about that. God tells us in Philippians 4 that my God shall supply, not some, right? All of your needs according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And I got to thinking on that statement of what He said. If, if I did need something, how would I know? Because the truth of the matter is, everything that God has seen fit to give us is what we needed. And the other thought of that is, everything we don't have was not what we needed because He's given us everything that we needed. And I'll tell you what, if we ever get to that truth and get a hold of that, that's where contentment comes in. I know that everything that God's given to me is what I needed. And uh, boy, we ought to get excited about who God is. We really ought to. We ought to love Him. We ought to love Him more every day. And uh, I want to encourage you in that. Proverbs chapter 22 tonight, and uh, we'll try to be brief. And uh, we're going to begin studying a little bit about our Baptist heritage and um, from a scriptural standpoint. And this is just kind of a introductory message to it, if you will. Uh, we won't get real deep or real far into uh, all of the things that uh, we as Baptists believe and hold to according to Scripture. But it'll be a good stepping stone, and we're going to lay some groundwork tonight that over the next few months we'll build on top of that and uh, learn things. We want to make sure that we are not doing things because it's a good idea or because that's the way it's always been done. But we want to do things on purpose. And the purpose needs to be because God's Word teaches it. And so we want to look into these things. Proverbs chapter 22, we're going to read one verse of Scripture. And I trust me on this, I promise you we will not be taking things out of context tonight i always get nervous when a preacher says i'm going to preach a message and here's one verse of scripture to do it because you think well he's pulling a verse out of context i promise you we're going to use this verse to give an idea and then we're going to build on top of that throughout the evening and we won't be taking it out of context and, and so bear with us on that if you will proverbs chapter 22 and if you'll look with me in verse number 28 and it's interesting because many of these proverbs are standalone proverbs they're not tied to verses before them or after them but these are truths that Solomon had either written and came up with himself that God had given him great wisdom about, or they're things that he had heard people say and had compiled them. And we're not sure yet which of the two uh, uh, ways he came up with this particular one, other than we do know that in the book of Deuteronomy it says something very similar to this, and so it could very well be that he just got it out of the law. And uh, so we find here in, in Proverbs chapter 22, 
And verse number 28, remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. Father, we come to you tonight and we ask that you would give us your wisdom and your guidance. Lord, I need it and we need your strength tonight. Lord, there's nothing that can be accomplished here if you're not a part of it, if you're not in charge of it, and if you don't strengthen us for it. So I pray that for the next few moments you will take control of my heart and my mind and help me to be able to clearly get across the truths of the Baptist heritage and why it's so important to our lives. And then, Father, I pray that you would work in the hearts of those that are here tonight, that your Holy Spirit will be able to have free course and free direction in their hearts and their lives, that will be open to the truth of your word, and that we will already yield to it and say, Yes, Lord. We pray that you'll receive the honor and glory out of everything we say and everything that we do here tonight. And, Lord, may this be the message for the hour. Encourage our hearts and strengthen our faith in a day that is so needful for Christians to be bold in their faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in the 1600s, some folks came to America uh, called Pilgrims. And uh, they came in 1620 at Plymouth Rock. And if you remember your history... Uh, they came over here, and they were uh, for the purpose of separating from the Church of England. They did not agree doctrinally with some things of the Church of England, and so they were separating from the church. They weren't trying to stay a part of it. And then ten years later, the, the Puritans came in 1630, and they came not to separate from the church, but to try to purify the church and the thoughts of it. But all of these folks came in the early days of American history for the purpose of religious liberty. They wanted to be able to freely be able to live uh, in, in their religious beliefs according to their conscience sake and to be able to live in freedom, to be able to worship God as their conscience and the Holy Spirit dictated in their hearts and in their lives. And while they came to get religious liberty, many of them did not come to give religious liberty. And really up until about the mid-1800s here in America, even after our war for independence took place and many of the battles had taken place and there was great freedom, the Declaration of Independence had been written, the Constitution had been ratified, and all of these liberties had been granted to the nation as a whole, even in the state of Massachusetts, which was the last state to officially adopt a constitution that guaranteed religious liberty of religious freedoms, uh, in about 1834 or so, there was not always religious liberty. And the very first Baptist church that was built in the United States of America was built in Providence, Rhode Island, by a man named Roger Williams. You might have studied him in history. And Roger Williams pastored that church for about three or four months and then got a real burden for the Native American Indians. And so he left the church, resigned the church, and began to go out into the woods and to try to reach the Native American Indians with the gospel. When he did so, a man by the name of John Clark became the president, or I'm sorry, the president, became the pastor of that little church there in Providence, Rhode Island. He had some men in his church, a man by the name of John Crandall and a man by the name of Obadiah Holmes. And these were dear laymen in the church that loved the Lord and uh, Brother Clark had uh, pastored that church well. In fact, for twelve, for 11 years, uh, he had gone over to England and had petitioned uh, King George II for a charter for the state of Rhode Island that would guarantee religious liberty. It took him 11 years to get this charter. 
And finally, after 11 years, King George II pins a charter that for the first time, in, and this is amazing to me, that all the way into the 1600s, for the first time in the history of mankind, there was a government a document absolutely guaranteeing religious liberty to man. It's the first time in the history of man that it ever happened. John Clark and John Crandall, Nobody Holmes, learned of a fella in Lynn, Massachusetts, a man by the name of William Witter. William Witter was a layman in the church that loved the Lord, and he was very sick and on his bed and could not get out and could not worship, could not uh, get to church. And in fact, in Massachusetts, they had a state church, and he could not worship correctly. Uh, he had to belong to a church that believed in infant baptism. And uh, he did not doctrinally believe that the Bible taught that. He believed that the Bible teaches, and we as Baptists believe that the Bible teaches not about infant baptism, but about believer's baptism, that you trust Christ as your Savior first, and then you're baptized as a step of obedience. And uh, these men believed in that doctrine and held true and held firm to it. William Witter had a hard time uh, being able to worship. And so John Clark and John Crandall and Obadiah Holmes decide they're going to go over to Lynn, Massachusetts, and they're going to encourage and edify their brother, uh, William Witter. And so they went over there, and while they were there, they met in his house. They began to sing songs and uh, share the, the Word of God with him, just rejoicing in the goodness of God. Something like what we do tonight here at church. And isn't it, isn't it wonderful to be able to do that kind of a thing? And William Witter had been missing this, and so these men just came over to be a blessing and a help to him. And they uh, did these things in the house there. And the magistrate of the town was notified of an, uh, an unlicensed uh, religious service. And he came and arrested these three men, John Clark and John Crandall and Obadiah Holmes. And he took them before the magistrate, the magistrate took them before the, uh, the uh, committee there and they said uh, that these men were found guilty of uh, having an unlicensed meeting and in, in Massachusetts. They weren't part of the state church. They weren't uh, uh, associated with them. And so they said that these three men had to either pay a hefty fine or they were to be well whipped in the, in the uh, square of the city and be held in the prison for 30 days. Some friends of John Clark and John Crandall and Obadiah Holmes got wind of this and they all came to their aid. And before they knew it, and very quickly, their friends paid for the fines of John Clark and John Crandall. And uh, they got out of prison. Some friends of Obadiah Holmes showed up a little bit later and tried to pay the fine for Obadiah Holmes. And Obadiah Holmes refused it. He said, for me to pay a fine is to admit that I'm guilty. And he said, I've done nothing wrong. And so they took him to the whipping post and they beat him mercilessly at the whipping post. Humiliations and uh, the pain of the whipping. And as they took him down from the whipping post, he made that famous statement. You have beaten me as with roses. And all the joy that came into his heart as God helped him in his time of need. And while God helped Obadiah Holmes in his time of need, I'm told that after the whipping took place for the next 30 days as he was in the prison, that he had to lean on his knees and his elbows to get relief from the pain. These are the kind of things that our Baptist brethren have had to suffer for the cause of keeping our doctrine and our distinctives pure. The Bible teaches us in the book of Proverbs that we ought not remove the ancient landmarks which our fathers have set up. 
There are certain things that as the children of Israel would travel through the wilderness under the provident hand of God, there were certain times in Abraham's life and Isaac and Jacob's life that God would do something special for them. And God would many times ask them to erect an altar there or a, a monument of some sort. And many times they were used for the purpose of offering sacrifice and thanks to God, but they were also there to be a reminder. You remember when the children of Israel walked across the Jordan River on dry land? You remember that story? And and the Ark of the Covenant went before them and the, the water stood up and they were able to cross into the Promised Land. And right when they got into the middle of the Jordan River, God told them for one person from each tribe to pick up a stone from the middle of the river. And to take it to the bank on the other side and to build an altar over there. And God did it for the purpose of them to offer thanks and sacrifice for His provision. But also for that every time that they could look back at that altar, they could say that stone right there came from the middle of that river as we walked through on God's provident hand of dry ground. It was for the purpose of remembrance that they would not be swayed or moved from who God really was. And there is an importance to being well grounded in what we believe and what we know to be true from God's Word. The doctrines of the Baptist faith are extremely important that we know them and that we hold to them. We'll deal in depth with them uh, down the road, but we ought, to, uh, we ought to never question the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to never question the deity of God. We ought to never question these these ideas that He was coming uh, for the purpose of being a, 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 a sacrifice for man's sin. We ought to never question the idea that He rose again on the third day. That, that ought never be a discussion among Baptist people. We ought never question the fact that we're saved by faith alone and nothing else. We ought never question those things. We ought to be solid in those doctrines. And so over the years, there have been men that have taken the Word of God and they have found principles of Scripture that, that are used to protect, if you will, this core doctrine. It, it's like a shield around them to keep us from doing that. And these are the, what we call Baptist distinctives. And I'm going to give them to you tonight. And I, if you have a pen and paper, you might want to write these down. And, and it's going to be real simple because it, it's going to be an acrostic. It actually spells out the word Baptist. This is not original with me. Uh, something that uh, back in the 1800s, a pastor uh, was able to come up with this acrostic to help Baptists be able to remember what our distinctives are based on the Word of God. And so the first one that we find is that we as Baptists hold to this belief that the Bible is our sole authority of faith and practice. This book right here is the only thing that we look to and say, that's what's going to establish my doctrine. Not the Bible and the pastor. Amen. Pastoral authority can't get out of hand if every member of the church sitting in the pews has a Bible on their lap and they can see for themselves exactly what God's Word says. That's what I love about the Baptist faith. Because I'll tell you right now, I'm, I'm human just like anybody else. And if I get it wrong, I hope somebody comes and says, Pastor, you need to look at this again in Scripture. I love that about the Baptist faith. It's a distinctive that we hold to. And it's something that, as Baptists, we've said, you know what, we're not going to allow anything other than God's Word to be our direction or our roadmap for what we believe and for what we practice. Now, we claim to hold to that, but I want you to understand this, 
There are churches that have the name Baptist on them that hold to other things besides that. Now, they won't say they will. But how often does a church do something because it's just the way everybody else does it? I'm not trying to be incendiary with some comments tonight or cause a disturbance here. But, folks, we've got to be biblical. We've got to believe that this book is our sole authority of faith and practice. If the Bible says it, we do it. If it doesn't say it, we don't do it. If the Bible says this is right, then it's right. And if it says it's wrong, then it's wrong. Because we live in a culture today that's trying to turn that around, isn't it? It's trying to say that the things that are deviant, according to Scripture, are actually the right things or the good things to do. And the things that the Bible says are good things to do, the world is looking at them and saying those are deviant. And the Bible says, woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. The truth of the matter is we're living in a day and age that if we as Baptists are not grounded and hold to this, we're going to start allowing our our doctrines and our, our biblical principles that we live by to be eroded from us. And the ancient landmark will move a little bit. That thing that we've held to historically for so long is going to move a little bit. And before long, our whole core beliefs will be gone. I think one of the terrible things about uh, over the years uh, some churches have done is they have become mean about it. You ever notice that? You ever met somebody that was mean about their doctrine or their beliefs? They were holding so strongly to it that they felt like they had to go out of their way to offend people so that they could explain to them or show to them that, oh, I'm holding to this. Can I tell you this? As Baptist people, we can be strong We can be steadfast, we can be unmovable, we can be bold in our beliefs. And get this, we can still love people. Amen. We don't have to be mean-spirited. We don't have to get up here and say, well, if you don't don't believe this, then I'll tell you what. I've been in churches like that. We know what we believe as a doctrine. We know what we believe as 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 our distinctives. And we hold to those things without apology. But everybody that walks through that door right there is welcome in our church. And we'll do everything we can to teach and to train them from Scripture what the Bible says. And to reach them with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we hold to these things and we hold to them boldly and without wavering and without uh, without compromise. But we do it with a heart of love and kindness. So we hold to the fact that the Bible, and that's the first letter of, if you're doing an acrostic there, the word B, the letter B, the Bible... Is our sole authority of faith and practice. And by the way, the Bible teaches that, doesn't it? The Apostle Paul wrote this in the book of Galatians. Though we, or an angel of heaven, speak any other thing than the things which you have heard, let him be accursed. The book of Revelation says that we are not to add to the Bible or take away from the Bible. In fact, it says not one dot or one tittle will be added to or taken away from this book. It is a perfect book. Amen. We, we need no other book. And we hold to these things, that it is our sole authority of faith and practice. It doesn't just contain the Word of God, it is the Word of God, verbatim. And as Keith Heights Baptist Church, one of the things I want to make sure we are well grounded on at the very onset of me being the pastor here is, we hold to these truths that our Bible is our sole authority of faith and practice. If Brother Greg gets out of line, I expect you to come and say, Brother Greg, look at Scripture here. And by the way, if you get out of line, I hope you're not offended if we come and say, look at Scripture here. We do it because we care, not because we're trying to be mean-spirited. Because we love one another. Amen? We're provoking one another to love and to good works. 
And so I want to encourage you in that. All right. Uh, secondly, uh, we believe in an autonomous church, an autonomous church. Baptists have always historically held to this, that there is a local and it's an unassociated, independent Baptist church, that every church is to be headed up by the pastor as he follows Christ. Uh, my dad, I was talking to Brother Scheffler just before the service, and I came across my dad's ordination Bible from 1966. And when he got cancer, he gave it to me, and he had written a note in the front of his Bible. He put his life verse in there, 1 Corinthians 15:58, And he also wrote Colossians 1.18. And I thought, I've never heard him quote Colossians 1.18. I wonder what that says. And I looked it up, and it's the verse that deals with the fact that he may have the preeminence. That he may have the preeminence. He is the head of the body. And the pastor is the under-shepherd, and he leads the people as he follows Christ. If a pastor ever quits following Christ, it's the duty of the people to say, Pastor, you're out of here. You're not following Christ. And so he leads the people to follow Christ. But every church is independent in that fact. Our church has no business telling church down the road, here's how you ought to be. We work and worship and operate and function the way God gives us liberty to do as an independent, fundamental Bible-believing Baptist church. And we don't have to be afraid of those words, even though many have abused them. That's what we are. We are independent. We're not associated with another organization or a hierarchy of, of an organization. But we believe that the Bible teaches autonomy of the local church. Every church is to be led by that pastor as he follows Christ. And again, I've heard people criticize that and say, well, doesn't that give uh, the pastor too much authority? No. I met with a fellow here just a few days ago, just talking to him about some of the things that we're going to be presenting to the church, hopefully here in, in a few weeks. And uh, he was saying his company would be willing to, to help out. And I said, well, we'll certainly put you on the list to give a bid. But I said, I want you to understand, I get one vote just like everybody else. The church organizes and runs by itself. It's autonomous. And it follows the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we learn that uh, the Baptist faith is an autonomous church. He's not, it should not... Should not be a state church. It should not be an organizational church. According to Scripture, God always dealt with and worked with local churches, independent churches. Now, I understand that there is uh, the concept that one of these days the Lord's going to come and get His bride, and the bride being all of the believers, those that have trusted Christ as their Savior, no matter what church they're in or what denomination. And there are one or two times that the Bible speaks generically of the church being a global group of believers, but invariably when he's dealing with a specific church, it's always a local body of believers that are self-governed and autonomous. All right, number three, we believe in the priesthood of the believers. I love this one. We believe in the priesthood of the believers. When Christ died on Calvary, the Bible says that the veil of the temple was rent in twain. The place that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, where the mercy seat of God was. And the veil was rent from the top to the very bottom. And this is an amazing thing because God had had them build a tabernacle, if you remember, in the wilderness. And then Solomon had had built a a, a temple and then it got destroyed. And then Nehemiah helps to build another temple. And Ezra and and some of these guys and Haggai, they they helped build another temple. And uh, God has always resided in that holy place, that holy of holies. And when the sacrifice for atonement took place... The high priest alone was the only one allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. And he had to go through a purification method. And one of the things they had to do is they had to back into the Holy of Holies. Because the Shekinah glory of God was so uh, powerful in that place. His presence was so powerful in that place. They could not even face the mercy seat or they would be killed. 
from the glory of God. It was so powerful. And they would have a scarlet cord tied to their ankles. They went in and bells on the bottom of their robes and uh, for the purpose of knowing if this man died or not in the presence of God. Because if he had died, nobody could have gone in to get him out of there. And so they would listen for the bells. And if he ever died in the process of doing his duties for doing something wrong or, or seeing the glory of God without uh, realizing he was supposed to do that, they would be able to pull him out from the Holy of Holies. But the day that Calvary took place, the veil was rent in two. And for the first time ever, could you imagine the high priest on that day walks into the temple to do his morning duties and he for the first time with his eyes looks in at the mercy seat of God. Because now, with Christ's sacrificial atonement for our de- uh, death on the cross, for our atonement, we have direct access to God. Hebrews chapter 5 says, Come boldly to the throne of grace that you might find mercy and help uh, in time of trouble. And we have direct access, we have priesthood with God. We have the ability to walk into the very throne room of God Himself and pray. And yet we oftentimes don't take advantage of that, do we? I'm thankful that God gives us the opportunity to pray. And so we believe as Baptists that we have the priesthood of the believers. We don't have to go through a man. We don't have to go through a priest or a bishop. We can come directly to God at any time. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, who was known as the Prince of Preachers, uh, went on a field trip one day with some friends of his. He very rarely ever took a vacation or a day off or time off. But his friends finally talked him into it. He was one of those workaholic kind of fellas. And uh, they took him out. And in the journal of the friends, later that day, uh, they had written at the end of the day, they said, we enjoyed our day with our friend Charles Spurgeon, but we never knew when he was speaking to us and when he was speaking to God. I thought, boy, what a commentary. We as Baptists believe that we have that kind of access to God. That at any moment in time, we can come to Him in prayer with our needs. And every time we decide we don't want to believe in this or hold to these things, we begin to move those ancient landmarks a little bit. We've got to be careful of these things. We believe in the Bible being our sole authority of faith and practice, the autonomy of the local church. We believe in the priesthood of the believers. We also believe that the Bible establishes two ordinances. Two ordinances. We believe in the ordinance of believers' baptism. Once you're saved, that you follow the Lord in believers' baptism and not until then. You find in the Bible that there's a biblical pattern given that they were saved and baptized and added to the church. They were saved, they were baptized and added to the church. Even the Ethiopian eunuch, when he was met with Philip and he had been reading the scrolls and was confused by it, and Philip meets him in his chariot and he says, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he says, How can I except some man show me? And so Philip goes up into the chariot and begins to explain to him the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Ethiopian eunuch says, What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said this, If thou believest with all thine heart that Christ is raised from the dead, then you can be saved, you can be baptized. You're saved, and then you're baptized. We do not believe in infant baptism. And I'm going to tell you something, folks, and we'll deal more with this as we get into some studies down the road. But it's unbelievable the price that Baptist people have paid for that over the years. That one issue... Of believers' baptism. And then we believe that God has established the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. We just recently had the Lord's Supper. I took a little bit of time to teach and uh, a little bit on that. And the purpose of the Lord's Supper, I think, is vital for us to understand. Because there are a lot of things out there, a lot of churches that don't fully understand what the Lord's Supper is all about. 
They do it as a practice because the Bible says we should, but they don't understand the why of it. And there's a covenant that God made with us when he died on Calvary. We're no longer under the law. We're under grace. The book of Galatians teaches us that. And so a new covenant was established that day at Calvary. And that's why our Bible is divided into two halves, if you will. The Old Testament, or the, that's the New Testament word for covenant, the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, and then the New Testament or the New Covenant. And so we had the law in one place, we have grace in the other place. And so this covenant was made by the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary. He went through all of the process of establishing covenant. And the book of Hebrews talks about him being the surety, the guarantor of our faith. We're secure in Christ, not because of what we do, but because of what he's done. We have eternal security, not because we've kept the faith and because we've kept ourselves away from sin, but because of God being our Christ himself, being our surety for our salvation. We didn't get ourselves saved. We don't keep ourselves saved. We simply put our faith in His shed blood and let Him keep us saved. He's the one that seals us under the day of redemption. And so we believe in these things. And so the purpose of the Lord's Supper is a covenant meal. And part of the process of covenant was at the end of it to have a covenant meal. That's where we get our wedding receptions from. It's a leftover from the Old Testament covenant practice of having a meal after a covenant was made for the purpose of remembering. And then you eat the cake a year later, and that's a leftover from the Old Testament covenant. Because you were from time to time to have a covenant meal that was none other than a reminder of the covenant that was made. And the Lord's table is the covenant meal. And as we have the Lord's Supper, it's served as a reminder of what the covenant that was made on Calvary for you and I. In fact, in the book of 1 Corinthians, he says this, this is the New Testament or the New Covenant in my blood which is shed for you. He says, as often as you do, do in remembrance of me. So we have two ordinances. We have baptism and the Lord's Supper. We believe in individual soul liberty. We believe in individual soul liberty. What is individual soul liberty? We believe that the Holy Spirit of God is able to lead and to teach individual Christians about His Word. There used to be a day, several hundred years ago, that they would chain and lock Bibles to the pulpit. And they were written in languages that the common man didn't even understand, many times Latin. And they did that for the purpose of saying, and there was a denomination out there, a certain denomination out there that said, the common man cannot understand Scripture. He must have someone that is a priest or a bishop or an elder that can explain Scripture to them. And I'm all for pastor getting up and explaining Scripture. Ezra did that in the book of Nehemiah in chapter number 8. They prepared a pulpit and they read the law in front of all the people and gave, the Bible says, the sense thereof. And I understand the idea of a pastor giving the sense of the Word of God, but the truth of the matter is every single person that's sitting here tonight has every bit as right of authority to read God's Word and for the Holy Spirit to take God's Word and deal with their hearts as any other person. We believe in individual soul liberty. We live according to Bible principle as God works on our consciences and then as our conscience dictates. In fact, the Bible says it this way. The Holy Spirit, the, the capital S Spirit is the way it's worded. The Spirit expressly beareth witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. It teaches us that the Holy Spirit is our teacher. It, it witnesses with our spirit. It helps us to understand these things. 
How often have you read a passage of Scripture and you may have read it a hundred times before and all of a sudden it just, the light bulb goes on. Anybody ever done that? You know what I'm talking about? That's individual soul liberty. That's the Holy Spirit showing you something in Scripture that you've never seen before. And as Baptists, we believe in that. It helps us to protect our doctrine. Because you see, one man, if one man was... The, if it was the responsibility of the pastor to just teach doctrine and, and people weren't allowed to check it against Scripture and have their consciences and the Holy Spirit lead them and dictate them, doctrinal error creeps in like that. But you get everybody in the church having the Holy Spirit draw them all and teach them all the same things out of Scripture. It's hard to have doctrinal error. And so it helps protect our doctrine. We're going to quickly go through these last few. Uh, number six, we believe uh, in a saved and baptized church membership. We believe that those that are members of a local independent Baptist church ought to be scripturally saved and scripturally baptized. A saved and baptized church membership. It's the pattern of the book of Acts. They were saved, baptized, and added to the church. They were saved, baptized, added to the church. If we're wrong, we'll find out in heaven. But I like the biblical pattern. Amen? If it's our sole authority of faith and practice, then let's practice it. Saved and baptized church membership. And by the way, it needs to be believer's baptism. Okay, We've already talked about that and spoken about that. All right, next, we believe there are two offices that are given in Scripture. The office of pastor and the office of a deacon. The office of a pastor has several words in our, in our King James Bible that are used for it. Sometimes it's, they're called elders. Uh, in certain circumstances, sometimes elders are also dealing with an actual elderly person. It's literal and that older men of the church or older people of the church are to come together. But in most cases, when the term elder is used, it's used in the purpose of the office of the pastor. And then sometimes the Bible will use the word bishop. And so the pastor, elder, bishop, those are all three titles that are all one office in Scripture. And we do believe that the Bible teaches that there's an office of the deacon. Uh, It's interesting to me that the deacon was not even thought about until the church was running several thousand people. So many that the apostles couldn't keep up with everything. And the apostles were being pulled from the labor of doctrine of prayer and doctrine of the word. And so they sought out men among them that were deacons that could help wait the tables and help with the the widows and the the fatherless. And uh, that's what the office of the deacon was. And nowadays, uh, in the society we live in, deacons also serve in a legal capacity for any of the legal type of things for a church. They're usually a board that serves in that capacity as well. And that's not wrong. It's not outside of the bounds of Scripture. It's just they didn't have to have that in the Old in the New Testament. And so the deacons were there to take a load administratively off of the pastor so the pastor could give himself to pastoring. And so that's the office of a deacon. So we believe in two offices, the office of pastor and the office of a deacon. And then we lastly, we believe in the separation of church and state. We believe in the separation of church and state. And by that, we do not mean that religion ought to be abstracted or taken out of government. But we do believe that government ought not to have say-so in religious decisions or activities. Now, I do believe firmly, unless we get mixed up here, and there are some churches that do this, the Bible teaches quite clearly that we are to live peaceably with all men and that we are to obey them to have authority over us in the area of civil government. That means we still have to obey the speed limit. Sorry, fellas. We still have to obey the speed limit. Uh, we still have to obey the laws of the land until it begins to interfere with the law of God. 
And at that point, our conscience must dictate that we follow the law of God. And we, we don't make apology for that. We may suffer persecution for that at some point. But we live peaceably with our government. Historically, the Baptists have never been the persecutors. But they have definitely been persecuted. And you'll find a lot of other denominations that are out there that over the years were persecutors. But the Baptists and those that precluded the Baptists, those that held to the Baptist faith and distinctives, were never the persecutors. Uh, they lived peaceably in their societies. They were members, uh, profitable and constructive members of society. And God used them in a mighty way. In fact, during our Revolutionary War, it's amazing how many Baptists were so influential in the time of the Revolutionary War for independence here in America. So we have these distinctives. When you get home tonight, I hope you'll take time to review them because these folks are ancient landmarks. These are things that we hold to historically and distinctively and based on the Word of God. We hold to these things to protect our doctrine. And I hope that over the next few messages that we do like this, we won't do them every week, but from time to time as we have a Sunday night open, perhaps uh, we'll deal with a little bit more about why we are a Baptist. Very, very important that we understand this, folks. Because there's going to come a day, if God tarries His coming in our lifetime, there's going to come a day where those liberties may not be there anymore. And we will either be soon shaken in our faith, or we will be well grounded in our faith. And I think it's important for us to know. Let's stand together. Father, we're so thankful for Your Word. I pray that You will bless the time that we've spent here together tonight. Lord, it's been a little bit of an unusual thing, more of a Bible study time and a time of teaching But, Lord, a necessary time for our people. It's why we've chosen to do it on a Sunday evening rather than a Sunday morning. We're thankful for our visitors, Lord. Thank you for allowing them to be with us. I pray that you'll allow them to come back and be with us on another service. But, Father, I pray that you would help us to be encouraged through your word. To know what we hold to and believe. And, Father, that we will, in our good conscience, follow your word exclusively. Father, may we have the leading of your Holy Spirit and the discernment to know His leading. That He will teach and to guide and direct. Father, we want to please You. We want to glorify You. And that is our sole reason in holding to these things. Father, we're not trying to be stubborn. We're not trying to be mean-spirited. We want to love people. We want to encourage folks to understand Your love for them. But Lord, we must remain firm and resolved in these things that we be not soon shaken in the gospel that you've given to us to take to this world, that we would not water it down, that we would not uh, cause uh, people to have a false sense of security, but that we would show them their need of a Savior through the great love and mercy that you've shown them in the gospel. We pray that you'll bless our church in the days ahead that we will uh, hold firmly to the heritage that you've given to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just before we're dismissed, visitors, let me say thank you for being with us. A little bit of an unusual service tonight, a little different uh, way of what we would normally do on a Sunday night. But uh, as a new pastor, there's some things that I felt we need to be teaching our folks and making sure we know. And so bear with us. We'd love to have you come back and be a visitor with us again. And uh, if there's anything we can do for you, let us know that. We'll be glad to help you any way that we can. So glad to have you with us tonight. God bless you. You're dismissed.